the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, Paul's work for the church. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So that, that reading of scripture comes from an app called Streetlights. You can download that for free uh, from either the Google or uh, App Store on your iPhone or, or Android phone. Uh, it's, it's an incredible resource just to be able to listen to God's word. So just wanted to uh, if you're unfamiliar with that or like, why are they playing that? This is something we've done for our Colossians series is we're, we're using the Streetlights app to, to let God's word be read over us. But it's an incredible resource that you can download. We are uh, journeying through the book of Colossians together. So if you're, if you're new with us, if you're a guest or a visitor, or it's been a while. Um, we are just walking through the book of Colossians together. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago to a church in Colossae. It was actually a church that Paul had never been to himself, but it was a church that was started as a result of Paul's ministry. Paul shared the gospel in Ephesus. A man by the name of Epaphras was there in Ephesus to hear the gospel. He believed in Jesus. He went home and he started telling his friends and family about this Jesus. And out of that, the church in Colossae was born. And so Paul later hears a report about this church, this new church that is formed, and he writes to encourage them on in their faith. And this morning we find ourselves looking at verses 24 of chapter 1 through uh, the end of chapter 1 and the first couple of verses in chapter 2. Um, so if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn there with me. Uh, we'll be in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 24. Uh, there are certain actors in Hollywood uh, that, that are really and truly, uh, in my opinion, terrible actors. Um, you, you know who these people are. I don't need to give names, but I will. Um, the, terrible actors in Hollywood, but for some reason, there are particular roles that just seem to fit them perfectly, right? Like, like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, right? Keanu Reeves is a terrible actor. Can we all agree on that? Can I get an amen for that? But he fits the role of The Matrix perfectly. Like, he's, he's amazing in that movie. Vin Diesel in Fast and the Furious, like, one through eight, you know? I mean, he can't really play any other role, but he's great for that role. Some of you are offended right now. I'm sorry. I, I, think, the, I think the name that tops the list for me is Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. I've started to write. We've suddenly become a charismatic church. We've been extolling you for weeks to talk and to sing and really go for it. It's Nick Cage that has brought this on. Uh, in, in National Treasure, if you haven't seen the movie, you should just turn it on to like TNT or TBS this afternoon. I'm sure it'll be on at some point. Um, Cage plays the role of a treasure hunter 
um, who believes that members of a secret society back during the founding of our nation, which includes many of our founding fathers, uh, hid a, a, a treasure and, and then embedded clues about the treasure in the architecture and in the currency of our nation, which um, the clues can be figured out based upon a map that's hidden on the back of the Declaration of Independence. This is like the most realistic movie you've ever seen in your life, right? But in the movie, Nick Cage and his crew, they're, they're on this race to find the treasure. And in a plot twist, there's also this other group of people who have discovered this national treasure, thieves who want to steal the treasure uh, from the country. And so there's this race to, to see who can find the treasure first, uh, and, and so the movie kind of carries you along clue by clue, hint by hint, as they race toward the treasure. And as cheesy and unrealistic as that movie is, every single time I come across it on television, I, I can't help myself. I get, I get sucked into the, the chase, the hunt. I guess I love a good treasure hunt, which is one of the reasons, as I've grown in my understanding of God's word, uh, why I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because as one has said before, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, what you have is Jesus Christ concealed. And what you have in the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. The Old Testament is, is filled with hints and clues about God's unfolding plan of salvation, about a future Messiah and a day coming when all will be made right. But it's not until we get to the New Testament that we have the full disclosure of all of those hints and clues. There, there are glimmers of hope in the Old Testament, but it's not exactly clear how it's all going to pan out. It remains largely mysterious. The Old Covenant believers live largely in mystery when it came to, when it came to God's plan of redemption. Their faith was in shadows and in promises, but the substance, it came later. It's like they had a map without a key, right? It's like they had an encrypted message, but they lacked the cipher. And here in our passage, Paul refers to the mystery that was hidden for the ages and generations, but has now been revealed. Theologian R.C. Sproul explains that, that mystery in the Bible is something that was once unclear under the old covenant, but is now seen plainly under the new covenant. It's something that was formerly hidden, but is now disclosed and revealed. See, in the Old Testament, there were, there were hints and clues enough for, for those Old Testament saints, those Old Testament believers, to express faith in the promises of God. They, they could express their faith the same as we do in the promises of God, but they would have wondered exactly how it all would come to pass. Let me try to give you some examples. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Adam and Eve have sinned against their God, and God is, is speaking to them and to the serpent that has tricked them, the curses that they've brought upon the earth as a result of their sins. But in the midst of those curses, God says something really fascinating. He says that, that a future descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. He says the serpent will strike the heel of this one coming, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so you read that right there in Genesis chapter 3. 
and you wonder who is this serpent crusher? Who is this descendant of Eve who's going to come, who's going to be stricken by the snake, but is going to crush the snake's head? Who and how and when will that come to pass? And then you read a little bit further and you get to Genesis chapter 12 and God chooses a man named Abraham and he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. And, and, and through you, Abraham, and through your line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as you read along in Genesis, you wonder, how is this going to happen? Eventually, through Abraham comes the promised son Isaac, and through Isaac comes Jacob, and through Jacob comes the 12 sons that form the 12 tribes of, of Israel. God would later enter into covenant with Israel and promise them his blessing and call them into covenant and tell them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he would, he would take the promise of Abraham and put it on the nation and say, through you, Israel, I want you to be a blessing. I want you to be a conduit of blessing to all of the nations. But how exactly this would happen continues to be unclear because they struggled with their relationship with God. They struggled to receive the blessing of God because they just couldn't seem to ever quite get it right. Eventually, God would establish in Israel a monarchy. Israel would choose a man to be their king. And the first king of Israel is rejected. That's Saul. And then God chooses a man named David and tells David, he enters into covenant with David. And he says, David, I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless your line. And predicated upon the obedience of the Davidic king, God says there will, be a, there will never be a king that doesn't sit on the throne from your line. But it's dependent upon obedience. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, <laughs> there's not one Davidic king that obeys. They're all disobedient. And so you're left wondering, who will be this faithful king? Israel and its kings demonstrate a complete incompetence and ineptness to obey God and to walk in his statutes. And so the prophets come along and they began, they began to tell God's people, Israel, hey, you guys are getting this all wrong. You've forgotten the law that you have entered into, this covenant that you've entered into with God. You need to remember the covenant and you need to walk in obedience. And, and they also begin to, to warn that if you don't obey, judgment is coming. And then they point forward to a future day coming when God would establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Isaiah would speak of one coming who bears the title Emmanuel, God with us and Prince of Peace. He would talk of, an, of a spirit anointed leader who would show up and proclaim liberty to the captives and comfort those who mourn in Zion. He would, he would later tell of a suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of the people. The prophet Jeremiah would tell of a day coming when God would establish a new covenant and, and it would bring about new hearts of obedience, inner obedience. In conformity to God's law. The prophet Ezekiel would tell of a day coming when God would wash his people clean. That He, he says, I will sprinkle you clean of, of all your uncleanness and I will give you a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone. There, are, there were hints and there were clues the whole way through of a, of a serpent crusher and of a coming king and of a new covenant. But though the Old Testament was laced with hints, it was largely mysterious how and who and when these things would take place. And would they happen separately or would they happen all together? Until one 
quiet night about 2,000 years ago, an angel appeared to a woman named Mary and declared to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The mystery that was hidden for the ages was revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus begins his earthly ministry declaring, the kingdom of heaven is here. He's basically saying, it's time, y'all. All of the promises, all of the hints, all of the clues, it's time. He will prove to be the one that crushes the head of the serpent, the one who will sit on David's throne forever through his resurrection. He would be the one who bears the title Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the cipher to the mystery. Indeed, as, as Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. Every single one. He is the spirit-anointed messenger who comes to bind up the brokenhearted and comfort those who mourn. He is the suffering servant scourged for our iniquities and upon whose back our chastisement was laid. He is the one who ushers in the new covenant, who comes bringing with him the promise of cleansing and of, and of new heart. All of the longings and groanings of the Old Testament are assuaged in Jesus the Christ. He fulfills every longing. He consoles every groaning. He is the definitive answer to all of the questions, to every concern. God himself has come to rescue and to save. In the very fullest sense of the word, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The mystery long hidden has been revealed in the incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, tabernacled among us. But what Jesus would tell us is that there's even more to the mystery. During his earthly ministry, Jesus told his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And Jesus said, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Isn't that good news? The mystery, according to the Apostle Paul, is not only that God has come in the flesh. God himself has robed himself in flesh to bring us salvation. Jesus says the mystery goes further. As amazing and as unexpected as that is, it goes even further. And the mystery is this, that God has come to indwell us. He's come to indwell his people. Paul says in this passage this morning that Christ, the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What was hinted at but largely hidden in times past but has now become fully disclosed is that God's plan of salvation for his people ultimately involved not only his presence but his indwelling presence of his spirit in the hearts of his believers. And at Pentecost, the Spirit was, was sent and poured out by God the Father and Jesus Christ to fill the hearts of his people, to fill the heart of every disciple. This, Jesus says, is the full revelation of the mystery that, that was hidden for ages but has now been revealed. It's this, Christ in you. 
Do you have Christ in you this morning? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? What an amazing revelation that the God of the universe sent his son, not merely to be near us, but to be in us. Christ has come to make us new from the inside out. He has come to bring heaven into our hearts. Paul declares this mystery is glorious and it is rich. Look at verse 27. He says to them, he's talking about the saints, those who have received the spirit. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The wording here is is challenging in the original language. It makes for a a hard translation, but it literally translates as, as like this exclamatory question. You know how sometimes when you get really excited, you exclaim in the form of a question like, are you serious, right? That's what Paul's doing here. He says, how great are the, the glorious riches of this mystery in each of you Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is overcome by this mystery that creator God has come to dwell in man. And then he adds this phrase in each of you Gentiles, or maybe your translation says among the Gentiles. And Paul's getting at something important here. Namely, that through Jesus Christ, this wondrous reality that that God has come to indwell in man, this reality extends beyond the people of Israel. It extends to the Gentiles. It extends to all nations. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul builds on this further when he says, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed by the Spirit. And then he, he explains what the mystery is. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Paul says the mystery is that God's promise of the Holy Spirit, his promise of the indwelling presence of God, extends beyond uh, the people of Israel, ethnic Jews. It extends to the nations. It extends to, the, it extends to you and to me. Unless you're an ethnic Jew this morning, that's really good. It's good news for them too, but it's really good news for us if we're not ethnic Jews. And Paul marvels at this reality that the promise of a new heart, of cleansing, of of forgiveness, and of God's presence extends even to you and to me. Paul would write to the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see what Paul's getting at there? Jew and Gentile alike, we are united by faith in Christ. We are united by the same spirit. We all share in the same spirit in Jesus Christ. We are all Jews and Gentiles alike, members of the same body. We're all part of the same family. We're all partakers of the same promise. For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons and daughters through faith for as many as you of you are as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Jesus Christ and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise there's the mystery revealed how would Abraham be a blessing to the whole earth Well, through Abraham came the Christ, and through faith in the Christ, you're grafted into that family of Abraham. Isn't that good news? 
What a glorious mystery that has now been revealed. And this leads to the second thing that I want us to see in this passage. Not only the mystery, but secondly, the mission. Let's look for a minute at the mission. Let's pick up in verse 25. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The time in redemptive history had come for God's mystery to be shared, Paul says, with the saints of God. It was was hidden for generations and generations past. They longed to see these things. But but, but now, Paul says, it's been, the box has been open. Like, have you ever been to a gender reveal party? Right? It's like, is it a boy or is it a girl? Right? And you toss the baseball up. Poof, it's blue smoke. It's a boy, right? It's a mystery revealed. And Paul's saying, the time is to hit, the time has come to hit the baseball. It's time to lift the box and see the balloons go we need to know the mystery and Paul says he was made a minister of the mystery that word minister is the same word as the word deacon it means servant Paul is saying I am a servant of this mystery he adds to that this phrase of of oikonomia which means stewardship it it literally translates like a commissioning or a calling And Paul is saying that there is a calling placed on his life to make the mystery of Jesus Christ known to others. He had been commissioned by God to go share this good news that God's promise of redemption had finally been revealed. That Jesus, the Christ, had come. Paul had a mission. He had a mission. And and his mission took, uh, took two forms. He said first, he wanted to make the word of God more fully known. And then secondly, he said that he wanted maturity in Christ for every saint. In verse 26, Paul says that he lived his life to make the word of God more fully known. See, the reality was that there were many who had never even heard of Jesus in the first century. And can I drop some knowledge on you this morning? The reality is still that there are many, 21 centuries later, that still have never heard the name of Jesus. And Paul says, I want to make the word of God more fully known. I want this mystery to be known by more because it has been revealed. I want more to know. He wanted to reach the lost with the message of the gospel. Gospel, maybe you're new to church this morning. You're like, what is that word? It means good news. And it refers to the good news about Jesus Christ. And and Jesus Christ is good news, right? Because before Jesus, we were lost and dead in our sins. We had no hope of making ourselves right with God. But God himself robed himself in flesh and came to us. And lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserved and conquered death on the third day, rising again from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he right now reigns as king. That is good news for us because by faith in this risen victorious king, we are forgiven of our sins. We are cleansed of our unrighteousness. We are reconciled to God. We are considered children of God by faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying that is a glorious mystery that needs to be told to others. Somebody else needs to hear that message. Paul said, I am a a minister. I, I, I feel a calling on my life to make that good news known. Paul wanted to preach the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that good news? doesn't matter what your background is. 
It doesn't matter how bad you failed. It doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's been said before that the gospel is the most inclusive message in the world. It welcomes everyone and anyone who will come to Jesus by faith. But Paul goes on, he says, how can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's the most inclusive message in the world, but the gospel is also the most exclusive message in the world because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone is the savior of the world. And so people must know the name of Jesus so that they can believe in the name of Jesus. People can't believe in a Christ they've never heard of. They can't call on a Christ to save them and to fill them if they've never heard of him. And so Paul is saying we need to get busy about making the message known. What Paul says here is that in God's economy, beautiful feet aren't feet that have been pedicured. They're feet that have been busy proclaiming the good news. Now, some of you ladies don't like to hear that. You like your petties. There's nothing wrong with getting your toes done. But has it ever crossed your mind that Maybe while you're sitting in that chair getting your toes worked on, that you could also simultaneously be about having beautiful feet in the other sense, the Pauline sense, and dialogue with the person doing your nails about Jesus Christ. That you could have beautiful feet and, in Paul's language, beautiful feet. There are so many around us that need to hear the gospel who have never heard. Paul would write in in Romans chapter 15, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Paul wanted to get it to places it it had never been before. He gave his life to the mission of making the mystery of Christ go forth as far as it could go. And as he lived for that mission, though, he also wanted to see every believer in Christ built up to maturity. That's the second thing Paul says about his mission. He, He wanted maturity in Christ for every believer. Look at verse 28. He says, him, referring to Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul wanted every believer in Jesus to be a mature follower, a mature disciple. He says in in verse 2 of chapter 2 that his aim is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wanted the Colossians and the Laodiceans to reach full assurance of understanding. He wanted them to have the full treasure of knowledge and wisdom found in Jesus Christ. He would similarly write to the Ephesian church, and he would say that that leaders, that apostles and prophets and pastors and shepherds, teachers, were, were given to the church for what reason? To equip the saints for the work of ministry... For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Paul says that the goal of the church is not simply that we know the gospel at its most basic level. But the goal of the church is to attain to the full stature and fullness of Jesus Christ. There are too many baby Christians in the church, right? Babies grow up. We got a lot of those around here. It, it, it would be good for you to watch a child, right? Watch them for a little bit. They, they grow up. 
They grow up out of infancy and they, they become a toddler. And then as a toddler, they become like a preschooler. And then as a preschooler, they become a, a grade schooler. I've watched this happen in my own home too quickly, right? They grow up too quickly. But why is it that in the church we think it's different? Why is it that, that we think in the church we're just supposed to stay infant Christians our whole life? Paul says, my mission is that we would have mature followers of Jesus filling our churches to know Christ intimately, to, to be able to apply the truth of God's word to every situation. That's what wisdom is, by the way. That's what Paul says here. He wants the church to be wise, to be mature. As one hip-hop artist has put it, we ain't looking for decisions and converts. So you can put your hands down after the concert. Christ wants disciples. That's the aim, Right? Christ wants mature disciples, and our, our mission at Emmanuel Church is to reach, build up, and multiply disciples of Jesus who make disciples. That's our mission. We, we want to reach those who have never believed in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. There are so many people around us that need to know the gospel, that need to believe in Jesus, that need to receive the Holy Spirit. We want to join Paul on his mission of making Jesus known. Secondly, we want to build up to maturity those who have come to faith. We, want to, we don't want to leave you as an infant Christian. The gospel is not just the way into this thing. It's the way through this thing, right? It's the path all the way to the end. We need Jesus from beginning to end. We want to grow up in Christ together. We want to grow to maturity. And finally, we want to multiply disciples of Jesus, to go reach others, to go make disciples. The mission of the church is to proclaim the mystery of Christ that has been revealed until there is no place left on earth to be reached, until there is no person left that needs to hear the good news, or until there is no believer left who is still immature in their faith. We want to reach and mature through the gospel. I was on the Joshua Project website this week. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's a fantastic resource to learn about different people groups in the globe. According to the Joshua Project, there are over 17,000 people groups in the world. A people group is an ethno-linguistic group, right? So it's not a geopolitical group. It's not a nation. It, there could be multiple people groups within a nation, and according to the Joshua Project, there are over 17,000 of them. Do you know that over 7,000 people groups in our world right now have no access to the gospel? Do you know that there are over 3 billion people in the world right now who have never heard of the name Jesus Christ? we got to get the gospel to them, y'all. Do you realize that right now, this morning, in one of the most religious cities in the nation, that three out of four people are not gathered in worship but are at their homes? Three out of four. Now, I'm not saying going to church makes you a Christian, but it does tell us something if 75% of the population of Birmingham is not gathered for worship this morning. And even those who go to church, there's so much confusion about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's so much confusion about, about who Jesus is and, and what he's done for us and about this gospel that we've been talking about. And that's why as a church, we say that our vision is to make the real Jesus known, the Jesus in these scriptures. We want to make this Jesus, glorious, majestic, mysterious Lord who has supremacy and sovereignty over our lives. This Jesus, we want to make this Jesus known because only this Jesus is sufficient to save us from our sins and to set us free and to satisfy us. We want to make this Jesus known. And there are so many people in our city that need to know this Jesus. 
They need to know what it means to truly follow him and to be his disciple. And you want to know why, why it's clear to me why we've still got so much work left to do? It's because when I look around at our city, I see so much brokenness still. I, I see so much injustice. I see so much sin and so much strife. And there's so much of a disconnect in Birmingham, Alabama, between the gospel that is professed and the gospel that is personified. There's a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. But then you look at our city and the teen pregnancy rate is through the roof. And the single parent household rate is through the roof. And the poverty rate is through the roof. And you go, what's amiss here? I thought we were a bunch of Christians around here. If we're mature Christians, if we're mature disciples of Jesus, the gospel is coming to bear on those statistics. It will change things. People will come to know Christ. Truly, lives will be changed as they begin to live according to God's plan and his perfect pattern for their lives. Statistics will begin to diminish. Neighborhoods will begin to improve. Problems will begin to get addressed. See, Paul's vision for every believer growing to maturity is a vision for the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I just wonder this morning, how much of that vision is our vision? How much of that is your vision? Can you say with Paul this morning, with, with honest conviction, I am living my life for the mission of Christ. I have been commissioned. I am a deacon. I am a minister who has been commissioned for the sake of making Jesus known. Who are you actively sharing the gospel with? How are you growing in the gospel toward maturity? How is your growth affecting you to to live in a way toward others that, that begins to impact their life? And how is love, the love of Jesus being expressed through you This leads me into my third point this morning. Not just the mystery and the mission, but finally notice with me the means. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now notice verse 29. For this I toil, struggling, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What Paul's saying here is that this mission of proclaiming the mystery didn't come easily for him. There was a cost to it. He describes it as a toilsome struggle. He says, for this, he's referring to proclaiming Christ and presenting everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil, struggling, The gospel, for it to really get out and get to work, we're going to have to embrace the toil like Paul did. We're going to have to embrace the reality that there is a cost to this. Living for Jesus is not easy. I don't know if somebody sold you that lie, but if they did, they had limited exposure to the New Testament. Living for Jesus is not easy. Time and again, what we see in Scripture is that living for the mission of making Jesus known is toilsome. It is hard. I I think that's one of the reasons why we like to read texts like this and we like to pasteurize them. I didn't say pasteurize. We're not talking about milk here. We like to pasteurize them. In other words, what we like to do is we like to put this in the category of belonging to apostles and preachers. 
It's easy to do that, isn't it? We, we read this text and we go, oh, that was Paul's calling. That's not my calling. That's for super Christians. I'm just a regular Christian. I'm just a, I'm just a nurse. I'm just a barista. I'm just a, a, a business owner. I'm just, I'm just a, a this. I'm just a that. Paul is talking to us. You're called to live your life for Jesus just as Paul was. God wants you on mission just like the Apostle Paul. But let me give you two good pieces of news. Two good pieces of news as we close. If you actually embrace this call of Jesus to live your life for the sake of making this mystery known, number one, Paul says, God will supply you with the strength to do it. God will supply you with the strength to do it. Paul says he struggles with whose energy? He says, I struggle with all his energy, that he is powerfully working within me. The energy, the strength to do this thing, Paul is saying, it's not innately within me. It comes from the very spirit who has filled me, who has indwelled me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Christ in you is the one that strengthens you to do this thing. Paul says the strength that you need to live for Jesus is provided by Jesus himself. I love how St. Augustine said it. He said, commandest what thou wilt and then grant what thou commandest. In other words, God, you can tell me to do whatever you want with my life. You have absolute rights over me to tell me how to live. But God, you're going to have to provide the means necessary for me to to do what you're calling me to do because it is not in me to obey you so I need you to empower me to obey and that's the good news of the gospel everything that God requires he provides in Jesus Christ the strength comes from God it's it's what Paul wrote to the Philippians he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling you need to exercise your faith muscles but he adds that second phrase, for it is God who is at work in you, both to provide the will and the means, the will and the work to obey. Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Devote your life to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does he promise? All these things you're worried about are going to be added. I'm going to provide everything you need. You just seek the kingdom of God. Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply. You live in the strength that he provides. If you embrace this call to get on mission for Jesus, God will not fail you. He will provide. He will strengthen you. Secondly, God will supply you with the joy you won't find in doing anything else. God will supply you with the joy that you will not find in living your life for anything else. Look at verse 24. What a peculiar phrase. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. What a weird phrase. Paul says, I find joy in my suffering for you. How can we find joy in our toil? How do we find joy in our struggle? A few years back, I, I got to go on a mission trip to Haiti. And, and during this mission trip, we set up kind of a medical triage. We, we set up a medical clinic. And we were kind of out in the boonies in the middle of nowhere, Haiti. And, and folks, word had spread. And so folks began to, to press in and to come and to line up uh, for this medical clinic. And... Um, can I tell you that 
one, that this trip to Haiti cost me money, and two, it was kind of hot down there. And, and there's a lot of first world amenities in, that, that, that I'm used to here that aren't there. And so uh, in, in the slightest of ways, this was, a, this was an affliction. This was a toil for me, right? I'm first, hashtag first world problems, right? But during, during this trip, um, while we, we set up this medical triage and, and folks began to come as we cared for individual after individual, can I, can I tell you that it's not as though the heat and the discomfort went away? It's not as though my, my bank account was suddenly reimbursed. But to look a mom or a dad in the eye who is desperately eager to get their daughter cared for and to be able to actually provide a medication for that rash or a cream for that itch, to, to actually be able to provide some medicine to help with a fever, to be able to look someone in the eye and to, to provide that means of grace for them. Can I tell you that it's, it's an otherworldly joy? And in moments like that, you can say with the Apostle Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm glad to be suffering in this moment because without the suffering, I wouldn't be able to experience this moment of love. Right? And so I embrace the suffering. I actually find joy in the suffering because in this moment, I get to experience something that is otherworldly. It's, it's what we might call an expression of the gospel. A good friend of mine tells me a story about going to India several years ago and going on this all-day hike several miles up to this remote Indian village. And when he and his team finally got to this village, they met an old man who was sitting on this rock formation on the side of this mountain. And so using a translator, my friend asked the man if he had ever heard of Jesus, to which the man replied, no, he had never heard of Jesus. My friend said that he began to tell him the story of the paralytic, how God had healed a man who had been paralyzed since he was a child. And he used this to, to tell of this man, Jesus, who lived a long time ago, and to say that this man was more than just a miraculous healer, that he was actually the son of God who came to do more than heal paralysis, that he actually came to heal hearts and to save us from our sins. And then my friend asked this old man sitting on the side of a mountain if he would like to believe in this Jesus and to receive him for salvation. And my friend shares that the man responded and said yes. And he got to lead this man to Christ. And my friend tells me that that moment has left an indelible mark on his life. It's changed him. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in the cost to get to other places. I rejoice in the sacrifices of free time. I rejoice in the pain and the toil of hiking long journeys. I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? If we know anything about the letter of Colossians, what Paul is not saying is that Christ's suffering and death was somehow insufficient. Right? That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying that what was lacking in Christ's death was the reenactment of that suffering through his own life for the sake of others seeing and knowing how much Jesus loves them. What was lacking was a demonstration of Christ's love to those who had never heard of him. 
And so through his own suffering, Paul got to show others just how much Jesus loved them. What was lacking is the bridge between the message and the multitude. And Paul rejoices that he got to be the bridge. One pastor explains that Paul sees his own suffering as the visible reenactment of the sufferings of Christ so that others will see Christ's love for them. So through his struggle, the gospel got to others. And for that reason, Paul says, I rejoice. There's no greater privilege than to get to share Jesus with somebody. So what about you? Will you be the means by which the gospel gets to someone else? Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's your neighbor. Or maybe it's an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. Where might God be calling you to be the bridge of his good news getting to someone? As we close, I just wonder, do you want your life to count? Like, do, do you want your life to be marked with unregret? When you put your head on the pillow at the end of a long day, do you want to know how you can know that you didn't waste it? Paul says it's to live your life for the mission of making the mystery known. And even if that leads to suffering, you can rejoice in that because you'll have not wasted your life. You'll have lived for the most meaningful thing on earth. Let's pray together. Lord, this message is hard for us as first world people with all of the amenities of life. And we've drunk the Kool-Aid and believed somehow that we can have our cake and eat it too, God. That we can follow you and still live for comfort and pleasure. That we can make our lives count and still only give you the margins of our lives. So God, I pray in this moment that you would set us free from that lie and that we would embrace the call to give our whole life to you because you're worth it. And there is such a profound joy in leveraging all of life to make Jesus known. Jesus, you gave everything for us so that we would not live our lives for ourselves, but for you who died and rose again on our behalf. God, give us, give us eyes of compassion. Give us your eyes to see that there are still so many people around us that don't know the real Jesus, that don't know the truth of the gospel. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they've heard different things, but they don't know the truth of the gospel. God, there are so many people in our world that have never even heard of Jesus. Lord, let us not sit back and let days and weeks and months and years go by wasting our lives for trivial things. Instagram likes and retirement accounts. God, help us to live for the things that matter. Jesus, you're worth it. You're worthy. And our joy is found in proclaiming the worth of your name. So God, in this moment, I pray by your spirit, you would set us free. Set us free to declare the worth of your name to really live that and believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.